Welcome to The Bear and the Ball. I am your host, Nick Webster. So glad you could join Cal South's number one rated podcast. Today on the show, a very special guest. He is the founder of the Santa Barbara Sky FC, a brand new team that's going to be competing in the USL in 2024, Peter Moore. Peter, welcome to the show. Thank you. My pleasure, Nick. Thank you for having me. So, Santa Barbara Sky FC, why now? Having uh, coached up at UCSB for a couple of years, I, I was on the women's side, uh, coaching the uh, the Gauchos. And obviously, yep. there's, there's a desire for soccer there. I think that the men's program is probably a, a, a more advanced than the women's side of things. But soccer's always been kind of on the edge in Santa Barbara. Is it, It's ready to explode. Why do you think the city is now ready for a pro team? Well, I think, it, you know, the game, having lived here nearly 40 years now, uh, the game, and being involved in the game, either directly, indirectly, personally, all my life, professionally for most of my life, from the perspective of my career, um, I've never seen the sport be so well received by a generation coming through for a number of reasons. I've never seen uh, women's sports and soccer in particular, and obviously the benefits of Title IX, as you well know, having coached out there, uh, you know, still ring true, um, particularly, in, you know, um, in, in these big collegiate programs that, that need bluntly to find places for female scholarships. And soccer has been the beneficiary of that for the best part of 30 plus years. Um, and, and here in Santa Barbara, to your question, um, you know, I've only lived here a couple of years uh, moving back from Liverpool, but it is ripe for uh, the, um, uh, the the introduction of the professional game. Uh, diving into the history here, it's been 30, 40 years since there's been a professional team and, and unfortunately, who were very well received and well attended, but the league went, went bust. Um, and, you know, I, I think all the other factors, when you think about it, very diverse community, as you well know, um, huge uh, soccer town from the perspective of participation, both at club and recreational level, both at youth and adult level. The diversity of the demographic here, the adult Hispanic leagues have been around for many, many years. It's a brilliantly integrated community um, that you know, just lives alongside each other blissfully. And, you know, we've got a great Stadium again, as you well know, in Harder Stadium, seventeen thousand seater soccer specific stadium uh, that we're in negotiations with to, to play there. You add to that that the let's call them the indigenous American sports uh, are not that well grounded here. There's been no collegiate um, when I say collegiate NCAA uh, American football played since nineteen eighty seven here and and. Um, you know, everything moved to being soccer and basketball. And and by the way, go Gauchos in March Madness, uh, you know, who uh, take on Baylor on Thursday. So, um, you know, when I moved here uh, and, and I, you know, my first ever time in Santa Barbara, 41 years ago, selling Patrick soccer shoes out of the back of my car to Copeland Sports on State Street. And um, I remember rolling up. I lived in Long Beach and rolling up here. And uh, during that period as well, I was supplementing my income as a CYSA coach, um, delivering um, uh, licensing weekends up on the Central Coast here just to make a few extra dollars and to spread the word. Um, I, I think everything, all of the stars align um, both at a macro level of, of the power of the game in this country right now 
And when you look at communities that are ready for, for the professional game, Santa Barbara's got to rank right up there. Yeah, having had the opportunity to coach at Harder Stadium, I've, I've got to ask, how close are you? Because for, for those of you that don't know, Harder Stadium is the most soccer-specific collegiate stadium in the country. And when it is jammed, and I've been there, when it's being packed with 17,000 people, it creates an atmosphere to rival anywhere in, in world football, to be honest with you. How close are you to, to getting that agreement with uh, UCSB to have that as your home stadium? I think we're very close. Look, I'm going to be there Wednesday. Uh, the uh, the athletic director, Kelly Barsky, a, a, a new hire, a dynamic individual there that uh, is a, a soccer mom. Uh, and and I, forgive me for describing her that way, but that's exactly what she is, that understands the power of our game, understands the benefits to a community like this of having high-level aspirational soccer played, and understands what needs to happen there at Harder, where... You know, Tim Bonsteeg, as you well know, has built a powerhouse there at the men's level, the women's level, a little bit further behind. But Harder is a great location. Um, Isla Vista, easy to get to right off the 101, as, as you well know. And so for us to be able to supplement and complement what Tim has built there with a professional game, you know, it's my dream as a new resident here in Santa Barbara to have six-year-old little boys and girls dreaming of playing when they're 26 for Santa Barbara Sky Football Club, the same way that growing up in Liverpool, you know, I dreamt I was going to play for Liverpool. I, I was never going to play for Liverpool. But, you know, from the perspective, we all have our hopes, dreams and aspirations and we have our heroes. And, and I want to create that here. Um, and from the perspective, again, of, of where the game is, both men's and women's here, uh, I can't think of a better community uh, that is deserving, you know, a community that is unique. It's it's an affluent community. It's a community that has embraced the game for 30, 40 years here. And um, I think that the women's game will be equally important as well. And a, a lot of our focus will be on building a women's program here as well, uh, concurrent with the men's program. So we have the team, we have the colors. Fingers crossed we have the stadium. Let's talk about the team. So we're talking men and women. Uh, we're talking coaches. We're talking players. Where are we finding all these magical ingredients that will create this club that we hope is going to be wildly successful? Well, California, you know, as I well know, again, arriving here in 1981 to run the California Soccer Academies and build that out of Long Beach has always had a rich vein of talent. You can look back if you're down there in Southern California to post-World War II and, 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 and McDonnell Douglas and, and so many people. And, and when you really dive into the history um, of the sport in Southern California, you go back 40, 50 years and, and again, post-World War II, engineers coming over as the, um, you know, the McDonnell Douglases of this world were building, Howard Hughes Corporation, all of these were bringing engineers from Europe, from, from, from the UK, France, Germany, Spain, Eastern Europe, who then settled here as immigrants. And, and I played in the Southern California Professional Soccer League in 83, 84, 85 seasons. And, and it was still very much, you know, you're going to play Artesia DES, the Portuguese. You're going to play Garden Grove Galactica, who seemed to have an Eastern European link. You're going to play against Serb and Croatian teams. You're going to play against Dutch teams, Cerritos. I mean, it was... It, to me, it was fascinating coming here as a coach, as a player. I was doing my master's degree at night at Cal State Long Beach. So you look at 
the roots of the game here and the talent. It's multi-generational talent here in Southern California. Your granddad played. Your father, who came over as an immigrant, um, uh, you know, started to coach and build out the AYSOs, the CYSA, CIF at a high school level. And so you've got this massive uh, talent pool that most importantly is multi-generational. As you do everywhere else in the world, we never had that in the United States. It was typically, you know, your your, your mom and dad wanted you to play something other than American football that we're scared about. Uh, injuries. They they felt baseball was too static. They wanted you to do something cardiovascular. They had seen some grainy black and white footage on TV of, of, of soccer. And, and um, you know, it was something that as, and again, I can look at Southern California as a hotbed as I was selling shoes around um, the uh, uh, the region. My territory was the Mexican border out to El Centro and Blythe, up to Stockton, Modesto, uh, Fresno, uh, and all the way up to San Luis Obispo uh, in a Toyota Camry, and, and seeking out soccer specialty stores. Uh, so in answer to your question, there is plenty of local talent here that we can bring in. On top of that, I think there are ways that Santa Barbara is an attractive place, harder stadium, attractive place to play, uh, wonderful place to live that we can attract talent from elsewhere. I think you've got to also, quite frankly, look at, um, you know, let's go down to Mexico and find some players that would love to come up here and 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 provide, you know, obviously aspiration and, and hero worship for the local community who would be looking for that. So no shortage of talent here, Nick, that we can get. Uh, but, you know, I think we can cast our, our net a little wider. But I'm very optimistic that we can find uh, both Central Coast and Southern California uh, plenty of talent, either coming out of university, coming out of college, coming out of the adult leagues. Um, and, you know, my my inbox uh, is full, literally hundreds of people who want to come play here. So you're starting with the men's team in USL 1. Talk to me a little bit about uh, USL. I've I've been lucky enough to work with uh, Eric Winolda, uh, in the top division with the Las Vegas Lights. Um, the great thing about USL is there is going to be promotion and relegation, almost a dirty word at the upper level of, uh, of US soccer. The reason why it's a dirty word is because you're spending a lot of money to build a franchise with the possibility that you may get relegated. How, do, how does that jive with how American soccer is built Obviously, you coming from a, a background with Liverpool where it's, it's all about success and, and the relegation is not really on, on, the, on the radar. But h- how are you massaging that? Yeah, I mean, it's, I think ultimately it's going to come. And, and you're right. You're dealing with different business models when you're dealing with franchises. So, you know, think of it in fast food terms. You've bought a franchise and you expect that franchise you expect some exclusivity. You expect it to always be there. You expect to be able to call upon a particular customer base. And you expect solidity at the parent company, you know, whether it's a Burger King or a McDonald's or whatever. And that's the classic franchise model. They built it out. You're paying to be a part of that family and then leveraging whatever brand and products they've created. And that's the way sports has been in this in, in this country. You know, the NFL 32 teams and you know, it's a it's a very tight class, primarily billionaire owners who would, you know, would absolutely freak out if they thought they were going to get relegated to somewhere else. I mean, 
it's easier to do it in baseball terms. You know, I'm a Red Sox fan. I lived in Boston enough years to enjoy American League. And imagine if the Red Sox next season finished bottom of the AL East and, and were sent down to AAA. And, you know, so uh, and owners who put in hundreds of millions of dollars a year in salary, um, you know, I, I expect some level of consistency and predictability. So but I think in soccer, uh, the lessons learned, the, the, the actual excitement, you know, that at the end and particularly the Premier League season this year, I, I, I was looking at the table this morning. There's five points that, that are spread across 18. It's going to be a battle to the last weekend. And oftentimes the the biggest viewing numbers are the relegation battles on the final weekend. Who's going to stay up? Um, but of course, the, the the financial implications are dire. If you get relegated from the Premier League back down to the Championship, you do have a couple of years of parachute payments to assist you to soften that financial blow of going down. But you better come back up again within those couple of years. Otherwise, you become Bolton Wanderers, Barnsley, you know, the teams that were up there for a while, Charlton Athletic and 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 now scramble Sunderland um, now scramble to, to, to try to get back up there without the benefit of having those parachute payments. So, but I think ultimately, you know, and USL has made a lot of noise to the extent where it's being reviewed. Can we in league one, you know, if we win our league, can we go up to the championship? If somebody's bottom in the championship, do they get sent down to, uh, to league one um, yet to be determined, but I understand the concerns, and as an owner, I know that an expansion fee is paid, and you expect certain levels of of support, robustness, consistency, and predictability. But you know, it's it's soccer, and and uh, the rest of the world seems relatively comfortable, um, primarily because the teams have been around for hundreds of years, uh, and it's not like anybody's paying an expansion fee uh, to join. But but you know, the I think it adds to the excitement, the drama, the tension. Everything that we love about the game, when you do have the threat, if you don't get your act together, you're going down. You bring up such a great point, and I, you know, I don't want to get off topic, but um, five points separating eight teams in the Premier League. And, and, and as you rightly pointed out, every, every kick of the ball, there's something riding on it. And we are at the latter stages of the season, and yet there is still so much excitement, so much tension, so much drama. And we, we, we're all sucked into it, regardless of who we support. I mean, I, I'm loving the relegation battle and I, I don't have a horse in any of the races. And I'm, I'm wondering, with the American soccer audience, and they're so much more sophisticated now, there's so much more education. Um, they understand that promotion and relegation uh, – Within, within the environment I'm in is, is such an important component. Do you think that MLS is missing out because they don't have that component and the fact that you can get three quarters of the way through the season and there's just there's nothing to play for anymore and, and we lose that sense of competition and, and, and looking you know, further ahead towards the, the national team, without that competition, how can we expect our players to be able to perform at the required level? Yeah, I, I don't know whether they're missing out. I think the game is exploding here. And the experience of going to a game, um, maybe a little different than Europe, where we go to a game, you know, I first went to Anfield in 1959, right? So I was four years of age. And so are you going for a kind of experience? Yeah, it's a match day experience. But you are focused on that 90 minutes on the pitch. Um, I think what we've done in this country is make it a little bit more a day out. And I don't mean to demean the sophistication 
of the soccer fan, but you know, LA FC in particular, LA Galaxy, St. Louis recently, Nashville. You look at these these clubs and they're creating an environment where win or lose, you're going to have a good time. Um, back home, you and I know that lose and you're not having a good time. I don't care what happens because uh, you're going there completely and utterly 100% focused on, on the action on the pitch. I think we've created a bit, a little bit more of an entertainment experience in this country that is a great day out, a great family day out. Uh, LAFC in particular, creating a more European style flags, smoke, you know, TIFOs. Um, and so, it, it, yes, you want to win, but if you don't, it's not completely ruined, like it is for us if, who are totally embedded in, in the win-loss and draw of our, our, of our club. So I, I don't know whether they're missing out yet, but I think as the game, you know, over the decades ahead becomes more sophisticated, there will be, and particularly it needs a strong pyramid underneath, which is what USL can provide. It, it, it's it's no good getting relegated into oblivion. You know you get relegated to the Premier League, you're going into a tough league in the championship that's tough to get back out of. With clubs in there that are 100 years old that are pulling twenty five to 30,000 fans a game that have one focus in mind, which is either winning that league or getting to the playoffs and, and to get back into the Premier League. And it's a doggy dog league and it's a tough league. And even below that, League One and League Two, you've got great clubs uh, that, that maybe have fallen over the decades, so away from what they were, once were, the Preston North Ends, the Blackpools, you know, Bolton Wanderers we talked about, which are all, you know, top clubs in their time and have a huge multi-generational fan base because your granddad went there and your dad went there. Um, and, it, and it forms the structure of what it's always been in, in England, which is 92 professional clubs. You add on top of that a powerful non-league, the fifth division, if you will, um, you know, powered by by the likes of Wrexham and and and, and Notts County, uh, you know, who are you know respectively getting ten thousand for their games and national and global TV coverage, and you can see the power of the pyramid. And I think that's what we need to continue to build here in the United States is a full, robust pyramid. That that sure, if you do get relegated, you're not going into some bush league. You're going into a very competitive league that you want to get back out of again. And perhaps equally importantly, is a tremendous pool of talent that gets blooded down there that can move their way up uh, from USL Championship or League One or even League Two all the way up the leagues and ultimately into MLS. And what we're seeing right now is some that are being bought by clubs abroad where the United States is being now looked at like when... In the 90s, Africa was looked at for value players. You know, you could go get players from Cameroon and Ivory Coast um, and, and players who would cost you one third or one fourth of what you were paying in Europe. Scandinavian players, the same thing. And so I think the European clubs are eyeing what's going on here as good value proposition for getting young, maybe raw talent, but good talent that they can mold at, at a bargain basement price, should we call it, um, you know, when when. Uh, mediocre midfielders are going for 40, 50, 60 million pounds, euros, dollars over in Europe. You mentioned Wrexham. What is your involvement with Wrexham right now? So I, I, I was born and bred in Liverpool, but but my dad, uh, who had a pub, moved uh, moved us to Wrexham when I was 10 years of age. And, and uh, that's where I went to grammar school. Uh, that's where I played. Uh, I played in the Welsh National League for Gresford Athletic. Um, I played for Wrexham Schoolboys. Um, and, and uh, Northeast Wales youth teams. 
interestingly, you know, I was the right fullback, always was my left, the left fullback, Joey Jones, who went on to have a far better career than I ever did. And uh, in midfield, uh, Mickey Thomas, uh, that uh, went to, on, obviously, to Manchester United. We had a very good team. And so, um, and, and my family still lives in Wrexham, my brothers and my sister. And I, that's, that's kind of home, back home for me, uh, despite being a Liverpoolian. Um, the roots of my family, and my dad did a great job during some tough times in the 60s of getting us out of an environment in Liverpool that would have been tough to, to flourish and, and only 20 odd miles away in Wrexham, but a completely different world. So when I moved back here to, to California after leaving Liverpool, um, there, uh, enough people uh, told Rob McElhaney in particular, uh, you need to go talk to this guy. And the next thing I know, um, I'm getting a call from Inner Circle, which is a, a banking operation that matches up American investors with European football clubs. And they're the people that matched up Rob and Ryan Reynolds with, with Wrexham. Um, and Rob arrived here, right here in this, in, in this room and sat me down for a couple of hours. Um, his objective was to get me to, to move back to Wrexham, and that simply wasn't going to happen. But I told him I will do anything. I, I had, during my particularly teenage years and early 20s, if I wasn't playing for Gresford, if I wasn't but didn't have a ticket for Liverpool, which was tough to get, I would go watch Wrexham play at the race course ground and probably watch them play 150 times. Um, good team in those days. Second division, we would get 20,000 at the race course. And... Uh, home internationals. So Wales would play England there. And it's still, I think, the oldest existing international stadium in the world that still will hold international games. And so I said, look, I'll be an advisor. I'll help you. I'll guide you through things and um, give you the benefit of somebody that grew up there, uh, knowing the town incredibly well, played at the race course a number of times, uh, and, and kind of knows the history of the club back from the the great years when John Neal was the manager and, and uh, you know, they, they were taking on and playing in Europe because the Welsh Cup winners got qualification for European Cup Winners' Cup. And, and you know, I can remember him beating Porto and Anderlecht and, and Hadjuk split. And, and, and so so for the first six months, I did interviews. I, I told Rob's story. Um, you know, he, during lockdown in early 2020, had turned on Netflix and, and discovered a documentary called Sunderland Till I Die. And, and he watched it and he binged upon it. And he realized, as he told me, that I know these people. And what he was referring to is Philadelphia. He said, you know, our teams are crap, or they were then. And we've lived through this and we're, we're a tough town, working class town that's seen better days. And I, Rob McElhaney, um, want to do good by a community and I can do that through the power of football. Um, and he had never met Ryan Reynolds and, and uh, as he said, slid into his DMs and um, convinced Ryan that, um, you know, they could pool their resources for relatively small money uh, for, for two guys like that and, and do good for a community. Um, and so I helped, um, did a lot of interviews here, um, engaged with EA, my former employer, and helped get Wrexham in FIFA, uh, which was a, a big deal, obviously. Um, Glyndua University, we were the, who were the tenants, the owners of the race course. I, I knew enough people there. I had spoken there several times during my time at Liverpool and, and made sure that the two entities make so that, that, that actually Rob and Ryan could acquire the stadium from the university. Uh, I, I did a lot of stuff to, to just lay the groundwork and, um, 
be a sounding board for some of the challenges that are there. So, uh, and, and, you know, I still watch every single game as I possibly can. And uh, fingers crossed, it feels like they're on, on a good run now and, and only Notts County uh, can, can catch them uh, for automatic. It's a tough league. Only one team automatically goes through. You play, I think, 46 games, you know, and, and, and playing um, all over the country in, in small stadiums where, with with dodgy pitches and you know uh, it's not easy to be consistently winning and but if you watch it you can clearly see uh that robin reiner put some money into it you know two players up front paul mullen and ollie palmer can easily be playing in league one um but you know score goals for fun there for Rexamont. so my hope is that they get out but yeah i i am there as an advisor they know where to find me if there's any questions i've spoken to all of the staff there Sean Harvey, I know Les Reed from the Southampton days, Fleur Robinson, the CEO. Um, and, and I just hope they get out of that league because I think uh, they can easily exist, not only in League Two, but but be a powerhouse in League One because of the catchment area where Wrexham is in North Wales. As you mentioned, they're, they're flying high at the moment. The last two seasons, though, kind of being a little, little heartache and, and watching the show, Robin Ryan pouring in their money. Uh, was there ever a case that they're on the phone, Peter, what have you gotten us into? Because as, as you rightly pointed out, that the league, I mean, it's, it's as tough as the championship to get out, to be honest with you. I mean, there's, there's so much competition and there's no guarantees in football. <laughs> did, no, did, you, did, did you have to be an armchair psychologist at times saying, guys, trust the process, be patient. And uh, by the way, it's going to cost you a lot more money than you thought it was. You know, they knew what they were getting into. And so the conversation I had with Rob that that day, he, you know, he had um, told me that they knew they're going to have to pour money into upgrading the stadium. It's a great stadium. Um, the What they call the cop, what I used to call the Crispin Lane end 40 odd years ago, 50 years ago, um, is being completely redone. Uh, that stadium could easily be 22, 23,000. Um, you know, double Bournemouth's Vitality Stadium right there. Um, and they knew how difficult it was going to be to get out of that league. Last year, a little bit of heartache. Grimsby beats them and, and Grimsby having a phenomenal run this year in the Cup, as you see. So it's good teams coming out of there. But I'm cautiously optimistic now, having watched enough games, that they can go through as champions and they don't get embroiled in this uh, playoff madness that, that goes on there. Um, you know, big win, tough win against Southend at the weekend, um, you know, gives them a little bit of a cushion now going into the home stretch uh, with nine games to go, I think, five at home against Notts County. Wrexham would have to lose two or three shocking games and Notts County would have to be perfect, I think, to go in there. So fingers crossed. But yeah, Rob and Ryan know exactly what they were getting into and and I think some of you know the drama of not quite making it just adds to the storylines of the documentary series. Um, you know, and if you've watched, which I'm sure you have, Sunderland Till I Die, it's it's a similar thing. So close, so far, fans just living and dying for for the team. In, in some instances, you know, it, it's certainly growing up there, it's all we had. We focused, you know, in my days, three o'clock on a Saturday afternoon. If I if I couldn't get to Anfield or I wasn't playing. Um, off to the race course we go and, uh, you know, see who's coming to town. Yeah, I'm very happy to see Sunderland mixing it up in the in the championship again. Big club, yeah. definitely miss them in the premiership. Um, so this this podcast is is uh, audio only, but obviously we can see each other. And, and behind you is a uh, almost a museum to uh, the mighty Reds Liverpool. Um, 
tell us about your experience with with Liverpool FC because you were there at a moment where really the the stars aligned and the uh, the old trophy cabinet that was groaning previously really started heaving. Yeah, I mean it, it was. Look, I've lived in the U.S. as I say. I came over in the '70s and played and coached in the Midwest in Cleveland, and so I'm you know I've been pretty much here since '78, '79, permanently in '81, as it turned out, um, and. I'm as you know, I'm a dual citizen, so I'm as American as I am British. And um, but I got a call from an executive recruiter, you know, whilst I was at EA, uh, which I loved being in the video game industry, and it was 20 years of my life. Would you ever consider moving back to the UK? And no, no. Look out the window, sun shining. Yeah, yeah. No. Uh, what if it was to be CEO of Liverpool Football Club? And uh, of course, that hmm, that piqued my interest, and so. You know, a few months of back and two with Fenway Sports Group of, of what it was going to take and what, what was the role, which was a, a little ill-defined. And, and what I find myself um, as I retrospectively looked at it is in this moment of, of change and disruption in the way football clubs are being run and managed and administrated. And, and, and you know, I got there and, and my job, uh, very clear, was to run Liverpool Football Club off the pitch and to let Jurgen Klopp and his staff focus on what they needed to do to win and 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 kind of clear lines of demarcation didn't get involved in 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 football per se um not my expertise i and and not something that i really wanted to do was get involved in the transfer business and and the murky world of agents and all of that there's no way i could have done my job as effectively and, and applied to much time if I went into that that world. And that's what a sporting director now is for. It's something that uh, Liverpool had laid out it, almost in the in the eyes, if you will, of what the Boston Red Sox looked like. You've got a sporting director, which in this country is a GM that, that manages all of that stuff, um, works right alongside office next door to the manager, in this case, Jurgen Klopp. And then you've got your sports science staff, of which Liverpool focused heavily on your your data analysts, your nutrition staff, your medical staff, your physiotherapists. And all of this, as you know, is at Melwood, which had been the um, training ground for 70 years. Now they've moved and consolidated. During my time, we built out the academy to accommodate in Kirby, which is in the north of Liverpool, to accommodate the first team. And so, um, and so I, yes, I said yes in, in, in late 2016. Um, I'm still working at EA. And had agreed that uh, my predecessor, Ian Eyre, had already given his resignation and given the club a full season in advance, which allowed them to do the search that they did. But um, signed my deal. But unfortunately, uh, a newspaper in the UK, uh, the name of which will never come out of my mouth, uh, is uh, got the, the scoop of me joining. And, and that was February the 27th, 2017. I was a, a Section 16 officer of a publicly traded company, and they were going to break the news that night. So we we went public that I was leaving EA, and then I was joining Liverpool Football Club uh, in June of that year. And and so worked at EA for a few months, and then in April uh, packed up, and 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 my wife and I moved to Liverpool, uh, and immediately jumped into the community, getting involved with everything from the football club itself, the LFC Foundation, formed my own charitable foundation and doing kind of a, you know, what is my 100-day plan here of, of trying to do an assessment of what the club needed. It's an amazing city. 
and an amazing football club that means so much to so many people. And, and thus comes with that the power to do good. And so we focused in my life, as I think about it now back here, it really was four C's. It was community. It was civic relationships with the city itself because they relied so much on, on revenue coming in for, from Liverpool Football Club and Everton. But unfortunately, uh, primarily uh, for the Blues, it primarily the red side of the, of the city. The culture that we needed to build in the club, 800 staff working at Liverpool Football Club that didn't kick a ball. Uh, and then the commercial side, it was very clear to me. We had some catching up to do um, with the Manchester United's and Manchester City's to build game day revenue, sponsorship, advertising, because we wanted to be, and, and still they are, a relatively self-sustaining football club. And whilst Fenway Sports Group puts a ton of capital in building infrastructure, the new main standard opened when I got there. Anfield Road will be complete uh, making Anfield 61,000 at the end of this season, opening next year. The brand new training ground, world-class facilities. So I got there and, and three and a half seasons because we ended up in COVID in the final year behind closed doors. And we weren't going to let that season die because we were running away with the league. Um, and I had the most amazing time. Um, you know, I, it, it's it's tough because it's emotional and we got involved and embroiled in so many dramas, like every football club does, you know, trademark issues, furloughing employees, you just name it, and ticket prices. But it was amazing for me to be able to give back to a city that had given me so much. I was born there. I'm a Scouser. Um, and I take that personality and, and that self-confidence. Some of it is a little over, as all Scousers do, where we're, we can be a little cocky. Uh, and, and full of it. Uh, and, um, you know, we use it to our best advantage. And so I owed that city a lot. And I owed that city um, for my dad and my mom and my grandparents and uh, for everything they have done for me. So the, the power of Scouseness, um, it runs through my veins. And in fact, I did a TED talk on that very subject whilst I was in Liverpool. And um, it's a thing. I mean, I look back on my life of everything I did uh, and, and having those roots of, I think, a combination of being born and bred in Liverpool, growing up in a pub. My dad put me behind the bar when I was 12 uh, and, you know, dealing with adults. Being a physical education teacher, that's that's all I'm qualified to be. I'm a PE teacher. And uh, I always say trying to get 35 boys eight times a day to do something they really didn't want to do. Um, you know, you get that power of persuasion and your personality comes through. And I've and I've ridden that. And I've been able to utilize that to, to my advantage in all phases of my career, whether it was, you know, the, the early days of coming here in, in sporting goods at Patrick and Reebok um, in Boston, and then fortuitously fell into video games, president of Sega. I ran Xbox for Bill Gates and Steve Ballmer, and then 10 years at EA, president of EA Sports and uh, chief operating officer, and then off to Liverpool. And then more recently coming back and working in sports tech at Unity and developing um, technology for the metaverse, real-time 3D. So, And then, you know, because I, I, I got nothing else to do, apparently, uh, being the founding owner of Santa Barbara Sky FC. I'm wondering, what's, what's that like, though, to, to be a young kid, you're growing up in Liverpool, you're, you're, um, um, you're, you're a diehard Reds fan, and then you get to be the CEO of the club. I mean, I, 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 and I kind of compare it to you know, my, my 
childhood and and always wanting to be a commentator and a journalist and thinking oh it's never going to happen and then one day you know through fox i'm at the world cup final and i'm the lead reporter there and you and and it's it's mind-blowing and it was tingling and and it was it was just such a magical moment and within your career it sounds like you've had so many successes but was was it the cherry on top of the cake when you became the man at Liverpool? Yeah. Look, you go through your career and you do things because you need to make money. You do you you take jobs because you need to take care of your family. You need to fight your way up the career ladder uh, if you're ambitious, which which I, which I was and still am. And you want to also, but as you do that, your 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 life evolves and you start seeing different things. Where do I want to live? And and and. I drag my family all over the U.S. from from Southern California to the Bay Area to Boston to Seattle back to the Bay Area. Now here in on the Central Coast and and um, in search of my career, you went where the work was. Uh, as you get older, you start to think, I like it here, and and I'm going to see what I can do to to work here. So you used to live where you work. Now, now I work where I want to live. Uh, and, and so that changes. You also, if you're fortunate enough where money means a little less to you as you get further into your career and what the job is and who the people are and what the role is. And again, where it is, it becomes more important. And yes, money will always be important. You've got to pay the bills, but, but you evolve your thinking and the criteria by which you make decisions. And so so for me to have the ability to walk away bluntly from a lot of money at EA over a decade of, you know, you're in tech and you're, you've got shares that are vesting and you can see over the coming years what, what you're going to be worth and, and just going, all right, I'm going to leave all of that behind uh, and go do something somewhere that means so much to me where I think that my skill sets, uh, particularly in video games, interesting, which I applied a lot when I got to Liverpool can mean something and make people's lives a better life. And to, yes, and be a part of a football club that has meant so much to me and has given me so much joy uh, over the 60 plus years that I've supported them. Um, and I'd like to think that I left the club in a better place than I found it. Uh, and that's all you can ask for uh, with, with your job as, as, as well as, you know, feeling, you know, adequately compensated. But in my, in my, it was for my dad, uh, who imbued a love of the club in me and his dad, you know, so we go back close to 70 to 80 years of supporting the Reds, uh, maybe 90 years. And um, football for me has always been part either directly or indirectly of my life, both personally and how I've made a living, whether it was selling soccer shoes here for, for Patrick, uh, um, building out the Reebok uh, soccer program and then moving into running all global sports marketing for Reebok. Sega was Sega Sports straight away and, and uh, building that out and obviously going to Xbox and, and, and being involved there in, in, in video games of which sports are a very important part of how you build out your portfolio. And then, of course, at EA with EA Sports and, and FIFA, um, you know, probably a case study for in particular here in the United States of how a video game can impact millions of people and imbue a love of the game and a knowledge of the game and the players and the clubs and its history in a way that none of us would have dreamt of 20 years ago. 
Yeah, my son is a massive, massive fan of the game. Um, what lessons and ideas are you going to bring from Liverpool to Santa Barbara Sky? Well, I think, you know, our focus initially, uh, straight away, is this is a community asset that we're going to build. This is going to be a football club that people, young people in particular, aspire to play for. You know, talking to kids here right now, um, they want to play for the Galaxy or they want to play for LAFC or the San Jose Earthquakes. I'm going, no, you're, you're, you're going to play for, for Santa Barbara Sky one of these days. Um, and so community is very important. Concurrently with founding the club, uh, we founded Fundacion Cielo, the Sky Foundation, which is the philanthropic arm of the club. Look, we're a year from kicking a ball, but we're already in the community doing good. It's a 501c3 that is embedded as part of the Santa Barbara Foundation that will use, as we always call it, the power of the badge to go and help disadvantaged families um, that um, you know want to play soccer, for example. There's, there's families that... You, I don't have to tell you how expensive club soccer and travel teams can be. And there's a lot of families that have got kids that are great little players that simply can't afford to play. Well, we need to fix that. We need to make sure we democratize uh, playing at the highest level. And money shouldn't get in the way of that. It doesn't pretty much anywhere else in the world, only in this country where, you know, travel teams here. I talk to parents and say, well, you'd be better, better ready to shout out five to ten grand each year. Uh, you know, for your team, for your club fees, for your travel, um, you know, to, to play at the highest level. Well, we, we need to take care of that for kids who are good enough to play. Um, and, and there's a lot we can do, even in a wealthy community like Santa Barbara. There's still there's still poverty in, in pockets here that uh, we can help through the power of the club. And so Fundacion Cielo will do that. So I think that those are the things we think about, developing civic pride on top of that, developing a soccer culture here in town. Um, and, and I think we, you know, we've already done some fundamental economic impact reports of, of you know, having a uh, games, as you know, on ESPN Plus nationally televised on, on Saturday nights. And, you know, you can imagine that drone view of Isla Vista on a summer evening coming off the Pacific coast. You know, it's a chamber of commerce moment. Um, I'm not sure we got room for any more people here in Santa Barbara, but but being able to put Santa Barbara on the uh, you know national spotlight, what a unique uh, opportunity that is through the power of the game. Players, coaches, parents, fans, how do they get in touch with you and and Santa Barbara Sky FC? So you go on our website, SantaBarbaraSkyFC.com, and there's a info at contact us, and that will come directly to our email uh, boxes and, and we try to get to everything. There's a lot of players already that have figured that out. A lot of player agents, no surprise that have figured that out. Um, and a lot of um, people were looking for the next coaching role. They may be in USL League Two right now that are looking uh, to, to step up to League One. So go to SantaBarbaraSkyFC.com and you'll see a, a, a contact sheet. You can do that and send us an email and uh, you know we'll get back to you. That's how to get hold of Peter Moore. And you can also get hold of me on Twitter at Nick Webster. And you can find Cal South on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Peter Moore, thank you so much for joining the Bear and the Ball. My pleasure. You'll never walk alone, Nick. <laughs>